Welcome to Five Good Ideas. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, and I'm the president of Matri, a Toronto-based human rights organization. Five Good Ideas is a monthly program designed to strengthen the capacity of the nonprofit sector. For each session, we invite experts to share their practical advice on key issues faced by nonprofit organizations today. According to the latest Canadian survey on disability, roughly 8 million Canadians aged 15 and up experience a disability. So this means that people who experience some kind of limitation to their daily activity account for more than one quarter of the country. And this is probably similar in other countries as well. If you're tuning into this Five Good Ideas session, maybe that statistic doesn't surprise you because you're paying attention. Perhaps it also won't surprise you to hear that the same survey found that 70% of people with disabilities encountered barriers in accessibility. So if we do some very quick math, 70% of 8 million is 5.6 million. 5.6 million people in Canada face accessibility issues. For today's session, we're looking in particular at how this plays out in the workplace. How can we, as employers and colleagues, make our workplaces more accessible? How can we push against ableism, that is to say, against prejudice, bias, and discrimination directed towards people living with disabilities? To answer these questions, we are delighted to have Fran Odette and Sri Nalamothu join us today. Fran teaches in the School of Social and Community Services at George Brown College. Sri is the co-executive director at the Toronto Neighbourhood Centres. Together, they will present their five good ideas to respond proactively to the need for an accessible workplace with integrity and accountability. Since many of you watch and listen to the session from different cities, provinces, and even countries, let me mention that Fran and Sri won't be presenting advice on how your organization can become compliant with the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act or any other legislation. They're aware of the ongoing processes for developing and enforcing accessibility standards, but today they won't provide you with a list of step-by-step -step items that you can check off. Instead, they are going to share from their own experiences working on the issue, the challenges that they've encountered, and some of the solutions they have found helpful. Fran and Sri, welcome. It can be daunting to figure out where to start. How do we get started? What can help people get on their way? Over to the two of you. Uh, thank you so much. I think the first good idea that we can offer is assume that anyone coming into your place could be someone with a disability. So it's important to adopt a proactive mindset toward accessibility. Disability and impairment are not things that we can avoid. It's just part of being human. And I think if we're lucky enough to grow old, we are gonna experience disability. Oftentimes though, I think that when we think of disability, we tend to focus on physical disability. And really there is a whole range of experiences that include sensory, mental health, cognitive, emotional, episodic disabilities. So we need to be really mindful that when we can to be prepared to be in a proactive mindset. When I've done this work in the past, sometimes I have encountered defensiveness or a resistance when working with organizations, maybe because there's a level of embarrassment 
or a fear of looking bad. And sometimes that can come from not having set the bar far enough or that there is a lack of response because people have remained silent on the issue. So I think what's really important is for organizations to say, yeah, you know what? We have gaps that exist. And in order for real change to occur, we need to narrow those gaps so that change can be sustainable and meaningful. And we need to also think about this work as always in progress, that it's not ever going to be done. Because when we stop trying, that's when change also stops being a possibility. So needs of people that you're working with change and access changes. And we need to be responsive to those changes. Sri? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to share one of my early aha moments in doing this work. And that was when you spoke at our retreat in 2019, Fran. And it was a significant shift in my thinking, uh, moving from thinking about disability as an individual's issue and to thinking about it as an environmental one. And when we make it about the environment, it becomes about all of us. I think the first two years of COVID-19 taught us what's possible when we focus on the environment as the issue, because it changed the way we showed up for each other, the way we worked, what we prioritized. So when I think about it, how do we make this shift? And for me, I think remembering that our values are a big part of this work really helps. We all have values and mission statements for our organizations, right? And if we ground ourselves in that and in those values, then we can find our way back when we feel lost in the work. And also, if we make it about values and our mission, then we're all accountable. And it's not relying on the goodness of anyone's heart or on someone being nice. A friend recently shared this amazing teaching with me. It comes from Akaya Winwood around the difference between being nice and being kind how niceness is about ourselves, making ourselves feel good and kindness, which comes from the word kin or kindred, is about us in relation to each other. So again, moving from the individual to outside of ourselves. A while back, I was at this event and sitting at a table with someone who was blind. And I offered to get them a plate of food, which I thought was nice, and it made me feel good to do. But then afterwards, she told me, you know, what would have been kind, the kind thing to have done would have been to include her in the whole experience by describing interesting dynamics that I observed at the table, people's expressions when they were saying certain things, who's saying what, all of those things. And this brings us to the next idea that we wanted to share with you. Inclusion isn't about being nice. Fran? Yeah, well, that's a really important consideration, I think, in doing this work. We need to move beyond the niceties towards purposeful and creative practices that actually challenge the charity narrative around disability. Along with environmental barriers, I think it's important for us to realize that environmental barriers are also constructed by attitudinal barriers. We can't just put a ramp in and say, well, now people with disabilities can come into our organization. It's more than that. A ramp isn't an indicator that people are gonna feel safe 
feel heard and also seen. And when I think about safety, I'm thinking about those of us who come in and not feeling bad or feeling threatened by asking for what we need or any of us or feeling grateful that our needs were met. I think in this culture, there is such stigma around asking for support and asking for quote unquote help. And we need to normalize that people might need something and it's their right to be able to ask for it. And it's not a favor when they get it. Providing access is about meeting the needs of disabled people, but it's also about creating greater inclusion for everyone. The request that I sometimes have when I'm in a group setting tends to be seen as an accommodation versus the idea that maybe it's creating better access and inclusion for everyone. So an example that I'll share is that when I'm in a space, maybe online, in Zoom, or in a physical space, I am someone who's hard of hearing. And sometimes when there is a lot of chatter or crosstalk, I may not know who's talking. And I find it really difficult when people do talk over each other. And so what I ask at the beginning of a meeting is please speak one person at a time to speak up and also to look or direct your comments in my direction. Therefore, I'm actually able to take in what people are saying and it also helps me, but I think it also slows the conversation down for everyone. And when we do this, there is a sense of intentionality that comes from this request that I'm actually gonna listen to you. And if we slow down things for everyone, everyone benefits. So it's like that ramp idea. It's not just for someone who's using a mobility device, but it could also mean access for someone who's using a stroller or someone making a delivery. It could also mean the difference for a coworker who may have had an accident or injury and may now be able to come into work because the ramp exists, whereas before there were a flight of stairs, which meant that they had to take time off and maybe try and work from home. So I think it serves everybody. Three. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a great place to start looking at addressing some of these attitudinal barriers is HR. So what are some of the practices we can change right away just by asking ourselves, why do we do this? Can we do it differently? One thing that kept coming up for us in the conversations we were holding in our spaces was the idea or the requirement in place that around doctor's notes, that you need a doctor's note or a diagnosis to get an accommodation. And the idea that people have to prove themselves. Right? And it also costs people time and money to, to get these notes and that are often not covered by the organization. And this practice of needing documentation is partly led by suspicion and mistrust. So we invite the question, what would this policy and practice look like if we trusted people to know what they need? 
And again, a good place to start is to remind ourselves of our organizational values and mission. Have your values and mission statement at your side when you review your policies. Are your values re reflected in your workplace policies? Identify ableist language in our policies and how that language influences ableist attitudes in our workplace. And beyond just policies, we also need to think about how ableist language shows up in our everyday interactions with each other, which takes us to the next idea, recognize that language has impact. Fran? I think it's really important in change work is to recognize and disrupt ableist language and to make an intentional shift towards inclusive and respectful communication. For many of us, ableist language has been part of our everyday communication that we don't even think about it. We might say, I had a quote unquote, crazy day, when really we can come up with other terms. We could, instead of using the word lame, we could say, not cool, right? I mean, why are we coming up with using language that has historically been used to describe the experiences of disabled people in somewhat negative ways and harmful ways as a way of adding a flavor to our conversation. It perpetuates the idea that disability and impairment are bad. And so when I hear the word physically challenged or differently abled, I want to be honest, folks, I'd much rather that you say disabled, disability, or impairment, because really what that suggests to me is that you, the speaker, are actually uncomfortable with the words disability and impairment and see them as bad things. I know it's hard work. I really do. But I think that part of our work starts with the everyday connection that we make with people. And when we see it or hear it from our colleagues, how do we start to disrupt it? And how do we start doing this sooner than later? Sri? Well, you know that, that saying practice makes progress. So that's how we do it. And there are no shortcuts, but we do have a few considerations that we're working within our own practice that might be helpful that we wanted to share. One, make space to sit with questions rather than rush to solutions. These questions are our most important tools for now. They are our guide and they keep the work present. Two, prioritize this work. We just have to make an intentional decision to do so because this is a first step to culture change. It demonstrates an intention to change something. Three, not doing more harm in our learning. So we need to recognize labor, who's holding it, who's not, and to be mindful of our moments of growth and how they can be at the expense of others if we're not careful. We need to be okay with getting it wrong. And when you fail is when you learn and always have a repair practice in place. And it's something that could be as simple as, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. And to, to realize that accessibility is about all of us, meaning both our whole self and also who we are collectively. 
And finally, to use an intersectional lens, bless Kimberly Crenshaw for, for this term. We can't think of this as another bucket of work to add on, but we need to see it as how it's interrelated identities that mutually shape the issues that we're all trying to address. And this takes us to our next idea, embrace intersectionality. Brian? I think that oftentimes, those of us that are doing anti-oppression work, we need to bring that lens to also thinking about disability. So disability is not this monolithic experience. Oftentimes, though, it is left out or an afterthought in EDI work. And like all of us, disabled people are not single issues. Disability principles or disability justice principles are not just for disabled folks, but really can be integrated into all of our work, like examples around interdependence. We're not ships that are out in the sea on our own. We all at one time need to ask for support from one another. The ideas of leadership from those of us who are most impacted by oppression and discrimination. In the disability justice movement, I think it's really important that it really demands that the disability rights movement has us think differently about intersectionality. Because historically, it was a movement, the disability rights movement, led by white, cisgender, oftentimes working men with disabilities. And those voices of BIPOC, queer, trans, sick and disabled people were not at the table. Patty Burns and Stacy Milburn and Mia Mingus are some of the founding people that had us really think about social justice in disability justice work as an intersectional perspective and realizing that in their own work around social justice, disabled people were not at the table. And also in disability rights work, BIPOC, queer and trans folks, voices were also left out of the equation. So we're still grappling with that in many settings that we're not asked to be at the table around other kinds of collective work. Sri? I love that you shared some of those principles. The two that stand out for me are interdependence and collective care. And these are incredible gifts, right? Because they teach us to normalize needs and they offer us ways to practice care. And this benefits everybody because it allows us all the grace to be human. And I think this is the key to transforming our workplaces. And I think it's really important to bring disability into the conversation. Mention accessibility every time you talk about EDI work. Add that A to, to EDI or DEI or whatever acronym that you're using. It's really important. And finally, we're working in a capitalist system, which means we can't talk about equity without talking about economics. So the next and final idea is make accessibility a core budget line. This ensures that change can be sustainable and that it goes beyond the bare minimum. And if we make it a core budget line, it becomes embedded in the organization. 
And we need to include it in all of our grant asks and advocate to funders for the need if there's resistance. And leadership has to lead. And they have to do this by doing the learning themselves so they can model it, by setting expectations, and by resourcing it. And resourcing it includes time, right? So paying for trainings is important, but also giving staff time to reflect on their learnings from the trainings so that they can figure out how they can incorporate those learnings into their work. It's very important to do. Fran? Well, and, and I, I think this idea of time and resources sometimes bumps up against the fact that we are living in a time that is somewhat challenging for all of us that are providing some kind of care work in our agencies. And that expects us to do culture change and to do EDI work without the resources. I also want you to think about this idea of what it means to be truly committed to inclusion. And that means access is part of all of your programming. So you're thinking about access, not just for service users, but for your employees, your coworkers, so that you're not pulling money out of one program area to meet the access needs of participants in another program and that you're always sort of shifting and having to make up for different budget lines. Have access be a consistent budget line in all of your asks and also in your core budget. One way that I think we can start doing some of this work and resourcing right away is thinking about captioning. Captioning is something that I ask all the time, that it be a regular practice at events and meetings. Not only helps me, but it also really creates greater inclusion for people that are also at the same meeting. Subtitles on videos, having audio description embedded in promotional materials is also a way that we provide greater inclusion. Another way is really thinking about disability representation in leadership positions. That includes having people who are disabled, who are part of your board, who are also part of senior management. And when you are thinking about access, think beyond the physical only, but think about dietary accommodations or access. Think about access needs allows us to normalize those conversations and people will start to know that they have needs and they can also ask for those needs to be hopefully met. The other thing is think about hiring more disabled people and think about how your outreach and promotion of your jobs may inadvertently exclude people and bring in people that want to work and can work. I know that we don't have endless budgets, but we also can't use that as a reason not to start. Sri, any last thoughts? No, I think that's a perfect ending. So much there. Thank you so much. Lots and lots of questions. <laughs> and we got some from the audience in advance as well. So I'm going to start with language because there's been a number of comments about language, understanding the meaning and, and recognizing that 
language evolves and you've talked about that and you talked about using the language of disability. And one person has said they've been told not to use the term disabled or disability or impairment, but to use differently abled. And these are by individuals and spokespersons for people with disabilities. So how do we navigate this? I think this is a really important conversation. And I also think that if we are really coming from a place of social justice, it also means that we need to uh, honor people's agency around how they want to be identified. I sometimes feel like when we are using euphemisms to describe disability and impairment, we are suggesting that disability is a bad thing. And I can't separate disability from who I am. It does influence my worldview and not in a bad way. And I think that when we start coming up with things that feel more palatable for us rather than for that person that we're talking to, we're also engaging in some invisibility and erasure of who they are. When in doubt, ask folks, that's all I'm saying. You don't have to have the answers, but I think disability is a sociopolitical experience and we can start making change even in our day-to-day conversations. I, I think the don't be afraid to ask is so important because it opens the dialogue. It's humbling to say, I don't know. And, and it restores the balance, I think, in some cases. So I think it's great advice. Language is powerful. One person says, I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of occupational health and some of the language used in that discipline. What are your thoughts on the terms and practice of quote unquote disability management? I think there's something around the term management, again, that picks up on stuff that you shared earlier. There are a lot of assumptions. I don't know if I'm using this right, but it's pathologizing people's situations when that's not necessarily the case. And so anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Fran. Absolutely. I agree with what you're saying. And I think also there is a history to many disabled people's experiences around needing to be managed, needing to have other people impose what they think is best for us and not seeing us as being the experts of our own lived experience. And so I do have a little bit of a response to the word disability management as if it's something that needs to be managed. Fran, you said you speak out and say, this is what I need in a meeting. I need you to speak one at a time. I need you to speak toward me. One person asks, as a person with an invisible disability, I find it hard to ask for help because I find I have to explain my disability every time. Do you have suggestions on ways to ask for help or accommodation that may be needed without having to do that, without having to go through that process? I think it's a really great question and and I don't have a solution, but I think that it is sometimes more difficult for folks who do have invisible disabilities because of the stigma that is still surrounding what it means to be disabled and to be perceived through a lens that tends to see many folks with disabilities through a deficit perspective. And so it can be really risky to say, this is what I need. You don't need to say why, but you can ask for what you need. 
And under the Human Rights Code, people aren't necessarily supposed to ask why you need it. And I think that there is also a way that we get to shift this idea of accommodation only being for disabled people and really challenge ways of thinking around access and inclusion and how that opens up the doors and experiences of inclusion for so many more people. It can feel very isolating to be the only one doing this work. And that's why, you know, Sri and I really believe that working collectively, thinking about allyship when your experience is not that of the other person can be huge, can really reduce the isolation and the feelings of aloneness in doing this work. And, I, and when we do it together, it's the practice of creating, people have different names for it, but we think of it as community guidelines, like as conveners, as people pulling, organizing these meetings. I mean, to take the time at the beginning of every meeting that you have to set some guidelines that respect the different needs that people might have in terms of the way you are going, going to choose to communicate in this space. And a lot of that can be informed by needs that people have expressed without having someone it being about the individual. Let's make it about all of us and let's all agree to these terms of communication. I, I want to add just one more thing to what Sri is saying, is that I think when Sri and I do our work, I feel like Sri is a co-conspirator with me. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I think that our efforts are about resistance. It is resistance to being erased and made invisible. And when I have someone alongside who is supporting that work, I feel like that's also a powerful statement. There's another layer to this question, but I think you've already addressed it, but in case you want to add anything further, and this came in before the presentation, the person asks, how can employers create a truly safe, non-judgmental, low-risk space for employees to speak their truth? Sri, what do you think? Well, all of our work is rooted in relationship building, and that relationship building started like six, seven years ago with a lot of, you know, intentionally six, seven years ago, thinking about relationship building as a practice. And I, I there's no, again, there's no shortcut to this. It's, it's if you want to make people feel heard and safe and trust each other, you have to build relationships and spaces where those relationships can happen, right? To make that possible. Like there's no to me, I can't think of any other way, but I think you can put some better practices in place that speak to just relationship building techniques, trust building. Like there's a lot of stuff out there about ways we can practice that with each other. And again, that's just that too. It's, we get better the more we do it. One of the sort of difficult edges sometimes of a disability in the workplace is neurodivergence or the unseen. And we have a few questions on how to deal with that better and support people who are challenged by that in the workplace, because often it's just seen as a personality thing, as opposed to a very real issue that they struggle with or work with or work through on a daily basis. Is there a way of building that also, or is it the same principles? 
I have some thoughts. Again, it's not a solution, but ask the person, what do you need in order for this to work? Because no two people, no two autistic people are the same and they are going to have different needs. And so I think our work is to think about how we can be proactive, but also recognize that we don't want to create kind of a cookie cutter approach to responding to people's needs either. And it's really interesting that this idea of there being some sort of personality piece, because I think that there are ideas of what is a good worker? What does that look like? How is a good worker uh, performing? And I think we need to be open to thinking differently about this idea of productivity and challenge ideas of capitalism and consumerism because far too long disabled people have been brushed to the side because they are seen as not performing or conforming to a very, very narrow idea of what it means to produce or be valued. Three, I don't know anything. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because I have two teenagers and I look at the ways in which they all communicate with each other within the schools. And it's all like nobody shies away from talking about their medication or different accommodations that they're going to ask during exam week. Or And I think part of it, I guess for the lesson for me is just how it's that normalizing of how we all are different. And we all come to our work or our responsibilities in different ways. We perform our responsibilities in different ways. But to me, it's just about like being just open and honest and the judgment goes away because you normalize it. And I think we can set and and model that with each other. We can practice that with each other to be able to say these things that we're too nice to say or the things that make us a little uncomfortable or how do I say this? And just to be able to, to, I think asking is also, it's that practice of humility too, because in asking part of the hesitation I am guessing is in, oh, I don't want to seem like I don't know or embarrass myself because I used the wrong words or asked the wrong thing. And I think it's just taking those risks. And I, I, I want to also add, if I can, very quickly, and that is the person that is in front of you who has the experience of disability has had to navigate the world much longer than you have had to interact with them. Like, this is just a snapshot of all the things that they have already learned to navigate and might have bumped up against in terms of the barriers. But how have they had to adapt, unfortunately? We are requiring people to adapt rather than, okay, let me work with you in a way that is going to ask me, as a neurotypical person, to stretch myself rather than asking you, the person who was living with the experience of disability, to adapt to my ways of being. And I think that's also part of this work. Yeah, beautifully put, Fran. Someone asks, someone who is living with a disability, 
how do we bring accessibility to a workplace without being tasked with being the only disability advocate? And I'm, I, Fran, you're nodding your head. Yes. What is your advice on boundary setting as a person living with a disability? Oh, I have lots to say about this one, but I think that in any EDI work, we cannot make that one person the person that is the spokesperson. It is all of our responsibility. When I'm no longer at an organization, I bring that historical knowledge with me. And now there's this void when really it's all of our responsibilities to be more aware and be more thoughtful and do the learning so that when someone leaves, that there isn't a gap now in that knowledge. And it isn't the disabled person, honestly, that should be doing the educating. I think it really is on all of us to be learning and being able to recognize when we don't know and that it's okay. We don't know, but don't make that person the person that is your educator. 100%. It's across the board with all of our anti-oppression work. I think there's a difference between centering the work and the intention that we want to do versus putting that person and their story in the center. And the idea of giving voice to people is requiring them to share that part of themselves, which is, that's not about the work. The work is about all of us. And that's what we need to center when we think about centering. Absolutely. When we started, you talked about things are always changing. They're evolving, they're changing. And one of the big changes in the workplace has been remote workplaces, working from home. Are there special considerations around this about how this is navigated in a work from home or remote work environment? I just want to share a little bit of a moment with you is that I think before COVID and before we found ourselves really shifting what work looked like, disabled people already had a handle on it. We already knew because of the fact that many of us were not able to participate in the physical space because it wasn't accessible or other considerations that made being in the physical space difficult or impossible. So we already had this figured out. And I think that a consideration is that it can actually be quite liberating to be able to have a choice, especially for folks that are having to do care minding of a family member or a child to not feel like I have to come in in order to be seen as productive because you can still be productive remotely. And I think it is on the organization to be really thinking about that critically to make sure that people aren't left behind because why do we, why is being in person an indicator that you're productive? And Fran, one of the things I think that's also come up in our conversations has been around the questions really, is the work getting done? Not how is it getting done? That's always stayed with me. If we just think about it in that way. I think that can help answer some of these questions. I also think it goes back to trust. And do we trust our workers? Do we trust the people that are not physically here that they're doing the work? Absolutely. There's a number of questions around the theme of resistance, as you might expect. And so just to start broadly, 
when you have an organization that thinks it's got the right values, that thinks it's doing it all right, but where the people that work there don't experience it that way, where do you start? We're able to do it within our space at at Toronto Neighborhood Centers because we're working in an interagency space. So when we convene, folks are coming together. They're not necessarily at their agencies. They're coming together and working with folks at lots of different agencies. And there's something about, I think, that that helps people build their muscles to have these conversations. What I see happening is if we're able to do it in this sort of safer space and in this interagency space, there's a lot that happens there that I think folks then start to feel maybe a little bit more confident or a little bit of a stronger muscle to take back and test out at their own agencies. But I think so much of that, honestly, is just calling it out. And I don't have an answer for that because I think that that's something people need to navigate. What kind of risks does that put you in? But but, but what I do want to say is I see that. I, I want to validate that that is true and that exists and that it's not something people are imagining or making up. Like it's very real. And I think it's especially hard for folks who are doing anti-oppression work. And this is where I think leadership is in such a wonderful position to like really address that question and to be part of the learning, part of the training and be involved in it. It can't just happen at one level of the organization. I guess I have an, another way of also thinking about that. It goes back to our last good idea around time and resources. And I think that it's quite powerful for those of us who live with disability and who are always having to advocate for ourselves to be in a space with other people and to really not feel so alone, like other marginalized communities, to find strength in being in a space where you get to also embrace and embody who you are in a different way without having to hide it or having to make it feel or be presented as not as a big problem. It's okay, I got it covered. You don't need to accommodate me because if you accommodate me, somehow now I'm, I'm overly visible. And it can feel very, very lonely for those of us that are doing this work and always having to bring it back to how am I gonna do this work in the ways that is expected of me without the support that I need to have to do that. It's a hard ask. And that's where it comes back to leadership as you were talking, that the leadership take it on, because there are also some questions predictably about how do you get this in the budget? One person asks, is there a role for unions in building this into the collective agreement? I think I know your answer, but I'm still going to put it out there. But who are the other allies within a work environment that need to be on board as champions and partners in pushing this forward? I I would say absolutely the union, for sure. I think many disabled people often don't feel supported by their union because of the fact that maybe it's part-time work, it's precarious work, and maybe we aren't going to have that kind of representation because we don't fit under the union parameters of who they will support and who they won't. But I also think the union may not always have 
knowledge about how to do this work. And sometimes people can be quite fearful of going to the union in terms of what that might mean in the long term. But I, I think that there is opportunity for us to really think about collective work rather than us being siloed into our identities or perceived identities, that there's lots more work that can happen around cross-knowledge sharing. Yeah, and back to the idea of collective work, I think when we think about conversations that we're hosting, trainings that we're having, it needs to be available to everyone working at an organization, because I think that's where we find our allies when we bring everyone into the work together. I'm just going to finish with continuing up the resistance chain. What are some good ways to drive the conversation about accessibility with funders who aren't necessarily super familiar with disability activism? How does it get put on their radar? I can share very quickly an experience that I had many years ago when I was doing anti-violence work. And we were a place that offered student placements. And occasionally we would have deaf students come in to our agency, but there was no money allocated for funding to be able to have ASL interpreters. And the only way that uh, the placement was able to fulfill that was to have an interpreter come in once a week. And we said, no, like this, this has to be when this student is in, even if they aren't part of a staff meeting we can't expect someone to sit in the corner and not have any engagement with hearing staff because hearing staff don't know ASL. So I think that that is also uh, thinking about funding to, to go back to funders and say, look, if we really are gonna be making social change work, be sustainable, we have to recognize that there are disabled people that are part of all of these communities that you are funding. And we can't take money from one budget line to be able to provide access. We need to have that as a separate line. Yeah, I think it's just helping connect the dots. And that's the final word. So I apologize to everyone who didn't get their question answered. It tells us how needed this conversation is. And thank you to both of you. That was incredibly rich, thoughtful, and I think thought-provoking. I, for one, am walking away with more than five good ideas in my head. So thank you for your time and generosity of thought and your leadership on this work. It's so important and so valued. 